Father in heaven, thank you again for a new day. And uh, at the beginning of this class, we once again want to ask you to guide our conversation that we have here today, that you will do the training for us. As we spoke yesterday, we were reminded, Lord, that this is a spiritual work. It is not just a technical work, and it's not just doing this task or that one, but it is spiritual responsibility of leading the congregation. I pray that you will be with us as we meet together. Once again, give me words to speak and give us all ears to hear you speaking in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to, uh, again, I've given you a textbook. You have the deacon, deaconess's handbook, and you have uh, a workbook that goes with the other. Again, I'm not referring to the workbook, and the workbook is just an, a supplemental tool for you to be able to, to utilize. I do want to remind you that this book, especially as I was reviewing things last night, um, I picked up something that for some reason I never quite caught before, and, and I'm, I'm not sure why, um, I hadn't noticed it, but he has prepared this book not just for Seventh-day Adventists, and um, it, it is written for Seventh-day Adventists, obviously, because it's all about Seventh-day Adventist history and all of that, so it's there. But I noticed later he has some parts of it where he includes uh, details of what other denominations, what would apply to other denominations, and if I understand correctly, he's just utilized it in that particular context, and there may be some people have used his material with that idea in mind and, and do that. But He's a Seventh-day Adventist minister preaching in a Seventh-day Adventist context, and uh, that's what that's all about. And I'm going to share some things today with you from the book. I'm going to share some things to do today with you from my own experience, and I'm going to share some things with you from the handbook. So it's going to be a hodgepodge a little bit today that you're going to receive. So take some notes along the way if there's some things along there, and the ones that come from the handbook... Uh, I'll make sure to try to highlight that for you so that you know that it's in there and uh, you know what that, uh, that source of that information will be. Yesterday we were talking about the fact that a deacon or a deaconess are spiritual leaders in the church. I re, uh, in our early conversation, we were talking a little bit about this aspect and... Uh, uh, in terms of responsibility, helping somebody. You said you'd been in uh, a deaconess for 12 years or something like that, and uh, people are still trying to, you know, talking about how to fix the communion bread and how to get, you know, take the tablecloth off and all of that. And I wanted to use that as an illustration because that becomes the focus of what we do is with deacons and deaconesses in our church, and we miss out on this great big opportunity that we have. And in my mind, it's a little like this. Um, we, we, we concentrate on this little piece over here, and uh, it's like going into a state park or, a, or a, a national park, and you see this little portion of the state park, like Yellowstone. You ever been to Yellowstone? I mean, it's a huge place. And if you only go to, to where uh, one of the 
geysers is like old faithful and say i've been to yellowstone i saw the geyser yeah you probably did and yes that was yellowstone but there was a whole lot more to see you didn't even come close to and the rewards of seeing all of the rest of it is is phenomenal well you know when we concentrate on communion bread and we miss the great opportunity for service ministry, experience with the Lord, changing people's lives. That's what God wants for us. And whether we're an elder, a deacon, or a deaconess, God is helping to provide these opportunities for us. Now, of course, if you go to Yellowstone and you drive in and you go over to the geyser and so on, it's a relatively um, easy walk over to Old Faithful and, and you can go over there and it's no big deal. But if you really want to see Yellowstone, you're going to be tired. You're going to be out of your car. You're going to be hiking uh, uh, off into the wilderness. You may be camping overnight or two or three nights or whatever. You, but if you want to really experience it, you've got to put in the energy and then you really know what Yellowstone's about. Well, it's the same with being a deacon or a deaconess. If you really want to understand what it's all about, it's going to take some effort. It's going to take some work. It's going to take some time. It's going to take time out of your schedule. It means changing what might be seemingly important to you now and changing that for what God sees as important in utilizing in your work. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, working 80 hours a week as a deacon or a deaconess, unless you have the time and the energy to do that. But I am talking about going from one hour a week on Sabbath morning to maybe four or five or six or something like that hours a week in the evenings, ministering to people, organizing uh, outreach ministries of various kinds and not, not just out of the church, but also in the church, reaching out to people who need your specific help. So that was the foundation that we laid yesterday. And today I wanna get into some of the specifics of, of ministry and meeting some of the challenges that take place in the church. One of the reasons, as we spoke about yesterday, one of the reasons that this work is so vital is because as with the early Christian church, when the apostles discovered that they had this problem with the, the need to be uh, meeting the uh, food needs and other needs of the widows in that daily distribution, when they organized deacons to accomplish this work and eventually uh, women got involved as well, either spouses or whatever, uh, got involved in this work, the fact of the matter is the work was able to continue to move forward and even exploded. We need that same thing today. There are 19 million uh, members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There are approximately 25,000 congregations, if I understand that. Um, around the world, and uh, that may even be a low number. But the, the point of all of that is we've got a great work to do, and we have a handful of ministers in comparison to the need that's out there. 
So if, if the pastors are expected to do everything, if they're supposed to solve all the problems, uh, conflicts that come in, if they're supposed to visit all the shut-ins, and nobody else is doing that work, I didn't mean that a pastor shouldn't do some of this work. I'm saying if the pastor is the only one doing that work, and the pastor is the only one giving Bible studies, and the pastor is the only one who is uh, uh, taking care of the physical plan of the church, and the... Uh, and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How long are we going to be here? A long time. Okay? And God isn't going to bypass us because Ellen White actually makes it abundantly clear that the latter rain is not coming until the majority of God's people are involved in the work. And right now, it's a great minority. It's less than 20%. Uh, the church members are involved in some aspect of work. And in some churches, and maybe it's just like that in yours, it's down around 5% of the people that are actually involved in doing anything in the church, whether it's a leadership role, giving Bible studies, outreach, or whatever. It's a low number of people. Very few people are investing in this because we've gotten become so involved and so connected with what's going on in the world and our own personal goals and, and all. Not that those are bad, but they've taken over our lives completely. And it's not what God wants for us. It's not God's plan for us. So I want to get into some of the details today and talk about what God can do with you and I don't want you to be overwhelmed. I want you to be encouraged that there's a, a greater horizon in front of you that you may not have realized was there. And that you get through to all of those places on the horizon by taking one step at a time. If you want to see all of Yellowstone in one minute, you can't even do it in a plane. All right? So you're going to have to take time. If you're going to see it on the ground, you're going to have to take a step at the time and you'll get around to it. The Lord will help you. If you wish that you had 10 deacons that were trained or 10 deaconesses that were trained to do that work and there's only one of you because you came to this, this uh, training program and you're going to go back and you've only got five deacons and, and you wish you had 10 and you need them and they could be that number because of the size of your church, now, some of you don't even have 10 members coming to church, so you're not going to have 10 deacons. You know that, right? But uh, you, you will find that God will provide what you need in time. And, and if you will start doing your work, God will start blessing your church. Your church will start to grow, and you'll see those resources begin to develop. God doesn't provide what we don't need. He provides what we need when we need it. So the training I want to do today is I'm going to start talking to you about conflict uh, work and as conflict managers. Why? Because that was the first thing the deacons and deaconesses in the New Testament were involved with. They were solving a conflict. There was a battle going on, and it was a cultural battle, and it was a battle between people as we looked about in Acts chapter 6. You remember we went through that yesterday, and in that story, what the people were experiencing was a significant challenge. It, it wasn't pretend, it was real. They were unified until it looked like there was uh, a problem or that it, you know, some people thought, well, there's a problem here and maybe it's because they don't like Greeks. 
And so people started doing what people do. They started talking about each other and uh, dealing with that kind of situation. So I want to talk to you about being a conflict manager. Yes, you as a deacon or a deaconess, that your work is to assist the pastor with conflict issues when they arise, but even better to stop them before they arise. Because sometimes you know something's brewing in your church long before the pastor. Pastor is usually the last one to find out there's a problem. But you are sitting at potluck lunch one day at the church or you've invited somebody else over to your home and they are mumbling to you. And they, they might even be gossiping to you. I know that doesn't happen very often, but they might be doing that. And they are telling you a little bit of how unhappy they are that the pastor has 45 churches instead of just one. And he is ignoring them especially. And they are just getting really upset that the pastor doesn't care about them. And uh, besides that, they're really upset with sister so-and-so because of what she did last Sabbath to them. When they came into the church, she walked, turned around and walked away just as they came in. And do you see a problem brewing in that situation? Now, you've got some options at that point, and one of them is to stick your hand in the sand, as an ostrich is supposed to do, and come away with, oh, well, you know, just whatever. That's just people. The other is to pick up the phone and call the pastor. Pastor, you need to solve this problem. There are problems going on over here, and, and this person's really upset with that person, and, and pastor, it's your job, so go fix it. Or you can realize that God has made you a deacon or a deaconess for the purpose of helping to deal with this thing so the pastor has time to concentrate on the growth areas of the church and the areas that really need to be concentrated on. And your church may be struggling now because nobody's helping the pastor with this process. It's all on the pastor. pastor has to spend all his time fixing the problems. Might be that you pastors even having to do the plumbing in the church. I mean, whatever. But this is different. This conflict issue is different than that. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that we can do to help in relationship to uh, these issues. So if you take one of these and pass it back, and if you take one of these and pass it back down on this side, I want to show you a little tool here. You'll come away with a tool here today that will direct you toward another resource. And I mentioned uh, this to you yesterday. Uh, it's, this is called a Peacemaker's Checklist, and, and it comes from the book by Ken Sand, and that's on the screen up here today. Ken Sand, the book is The Peacemaker. And the way he does it, I... Um, I come away a little confused whether it's peacemaker is one word, whether, whether he's done it, because on the book it's the peacemaker. So uh, he's placing, uh, playing a little, um, doing a little play on words there in his title and how he does it. Um, but at any rate, this tool is a checklist that he developed in relationship to working, uh, in relationship to problems of conflict. Now, so I'm going to uh, 
spend a little time. I'm not going to spend as much time here because I'm doing a whole class on this um, this afternoon uh, in my uh, in my training that I do for um, redemptive discipline. We're going to be talking a lot more about this because when it comes to disciplinary issues in the church, it's a natural environment for conflict. And it, it really comes to be a real big deal. But I'm, gonna, I'm giving this to you. This is actually a handout I'm giving in that class. And uh, I thought it would be helpful to you in relationship to this. But let me hit a few of the highlights. The first one is that there are three G's to dealing with conflict. The first is you want to be able to realize this is an opportunity to glorify God. Huh? Seriously? Conflict is an opportunity to glorify God? Yes, because when God fixes something, it gives glory to Him, right? He's using you as a tool, but this is an opportunity, and you want to ask the question, how in this situation can we use it to please and to honor God? The conflict continuing on is not pleasing or honoring God, yes? Am I right? Okay. So we know it has to be changed. As a matter of fact, in the class I teach in the afternoon, first thing in the afternoon, about preparing for the return of Christ, Ellen White tells us that until these dissensions and these problems among us are set aside, the Holy Spirit cannot come to us in the latter rain. If we are praying for the latter rain and we're not working to solve these problems, it's not going to happen. The Spirit of God will not give us power to continue to fight. Does that make sense? So we want to know how we can glorify God in this situation, and God will help us to realize that there's a way that that can happen here. When we're working with individuals, we want to help them as well ask this question, because they're in the middle of a conflict. They're not thinking about glorifying God. They're thinking about their own selfish attitude towards this problem. And so when I come to a person or persons that are involved in conflict, I want to ask them, what can we do and what can you do especially to bring this conflict to an end in such a way that it glorifies God? That immediately begins changing their thinking processes and moving it in a different direction than they've been going. They've been thinking about how they can get what they want out of this. They've been thinking about the fact that that sister so-and-so had, had borrowed $10,000 from them and then has not paid them back, and they're upset about it, and they're angry about it, and they want to know how they're going to get their money back, and they want to know how, and that's what the focus is. And they want to know what the church is going to do. Pastor, what are you going to do to make sure that sister so-and-so gives me my $10,000 back? And the pastor or you stop and say, now, what are we going to do in this situation to make sure that God is glorified? All of a sudden, God, what's he got to do with this? <laughs> right? And sometimes, most of the time, when we get in those kinds of situations, that's really where we need to start. The second Part of this, the second G, is get the log out of your eye. Remember, Jesus said, you know, you're, you're dealing with trying to get the little speck out of somebody else's eye, and you haven't taken care of that log in your own. 
So when we're dealing with conflict management, one of the things we're trying to do is help people to realize that they may be contributing to the problem. They may be part of it. What am I doing that is causing this problem? What am I doing that has made this a difficult situation? Uh, and it, it may be a number of factors. Uh, loaning $10,000 to somebody may be part of the factor. Maybe that wasn't a wise decision. Or maybe, maybe the other issue is my attitude towards it. Hey, I'm not arguing that $10,000 is a lot of money. It sure is to me, and I'm sure it is to you. $10,000 is a big deal. But what is my attitude toward the individual that I have loaned that money to? What, what is their need? What, what, what is my problem? How am I contributing to this? Have I made it worse by getting angry? Could I be making it better by figuring out, figuring out steps that could be taken along the way? So what am I doing that's contributing to this problem? Now, as you can see, conflict manager is getting into a little bit of a counseling type environment. And some people say, man, I'm just not qualified for this. Well, I'm not sure that any of us are qualified for us for this. Some of us do better at it than others. Some of us are even trained to do it. But many times it, it's not so much the training that you have as having a little bit of perspective of what God wants to do for you and use you for and your friendship and your leadership role in the church may be all that is needed to solve that problem in that church. Most of us have good common sense when it comes to these kinds of things. That's one of the reasons we're leaders in the church, and God will use that and give you wisdom as a part of that to help people figure out what needs to happen to solve their problems. Third thing is go. Go and show your brother his fault. Many times conflicts could be resolved very simply by simply going to the person and talking to them about it. I gave that money to sister so-and-so and I loaned it to her and I told her that I needed to have that money by the end of the month and she said, I'll have it to you by the end of the month and she hasn't paid me back. So I called you, pastor, or I called you, sister so-and-so or, or brother so-and-so deacon or deaconess and I called you because I want you to go and solve that problem and go tell her that she needs to give me that money. Now, you think I'm making up a story, but I can tell you of a conversation that I had within the last week that goes right along this whole area. Involves money, involves people, involves people talking to each other or not. So I'm not making a story up entirely. I'm not giving you any, the details that I'm giving to you have nothing to do with the reality, but I'm telling you those kinds of situations exist out there. And there are two that flash into my mind immediately, including one I was talking about a week ago. So I, I'm saying that yes, when people come to me or come to you and they've not even gone to talk to sister Smith or whatever about the issue, what should be our response? Our response should be, look, why don't you go talk to her first? You might find that she just forgot to give it to you. 
You know, maybe she's just been busy and why she no, go talk to her, you know, and have that conversation. And so many times people go and do that and they come back and they say, Yeah, she had the money and she just hadn't seen me and 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 all of that. In the meantime, you know, it's all over Facebook and it's all over the church and it's all over that kind of stuff when simply going to them and she's got the money ready and it's all, you know, all taken care of or or it could be she did forget to give it back. Now, how could anybody forget $10,000? I don't know, but we are human beings. And can they forget to do that? Yes, they can. Or they might say, can I have two more days? I've got the money coming and I'm, I'm really, honestly, I'm not putting you off. I just need two more days. Problem solved. Life goes on. But we need to apply the principles. Matthew 18 principle is go and tell them their fault and work through that issue. And the truth is most of our problems could be solved that way and easily so. The fourth is go and be reconciled. So how can I demonstrate forgiveness and encourage a reasonable solution to this conflict? Now here's, here's a piece in all of this that sometimes is the, is the most difficult part of it. And, and this is it. The fact of the matter is that there are times when you loan $10,000 to somebody and they can't pay it back. I mean, it's a risk when you loan to somebody. I don't care who the somebody is. Especially when you loan it to a fellow church member or a sister church member, whenever you do that kind of thing, you're taking a certain amount of risk. There's a spiritual risk in all of this. It's a spiritual risk to you, and it's a spiritual risk to that person. And it's wise for us as individuals, and I'm talking about loaning money, but it might be just about any other kind of issue that we deal with. There are times when we're going to have to say, you know what? God still loves Sister Smith, even if she doesn't pay me back. And I'm going to still love her even though she doesn't pay me back. And I'm going to forgive her even though what she's done is not what she promised to do, but what she can't do at this particular moment, or chooses not to do as the case may be. Because I've got to get on with my life. But when somebody comes after 10 or 15 years, and -and so-and-so still hasn't paid me back, and I'm still upset about it, that spiritual problem is no longer theirs, it's mine. I've got a spiritual issue in my life. I'm like that debtor in the parable that Jesus told that was forgiven a, a, a phenomenal sum, a sum that no human being could pay back, not even a king could pay back, and then goes after her and tries to beat up on the little servant, who, who fellow servant who had a hundred denarii uh, debt to them. When I haven't learned to forgive, I've got a spiritual problem myself. And even when that spiritual, that debt is a huge debt. You know, I I heard, you hear these stories periodically, and I read one here just recently of a a, uh, woman. um, I know, it's coming back to me where I heard it. And I can't remember whether it was a recording or I read it. But it was a story being told by, by Mark Finley. I, I think I heard it on the radio, on uh, Strong Tower Radio. And Mark Finley was telling this story how that he was in, uh, in Rwanda. 
And when he was there, he was, you know, doing evangelism and, and so on. And uh, uh, he had heard about the genocide and all those kinds of things. And, and so he was asking questions about it and, and talking to the people that were leading him around. And one day the person he was with said, listen, I want you to meet Sister, I'll call her Sister Jones. I can't remember what her name was. I want you to meet her. And so they went and they met her. And the gentleman that was with Mark said to her, tell him your story. And she told how that she was in, um, in the middle of this genocide experience as it was going on. They had run to a Catholic church to hide. And the people had found them anyway the mobs that were going down the street. And by the way, there were Seventh-day Adventists involved in those mobs killing other people, okay? I mean, that's, that's a reality. There, there were lots of Seventh-day Adventists doing this. Tribalism comes out in strange ways. If you've never lived in Africa, you may not understand that, but all you have to do is look at our own problems in North America with culture and all of that kind of thing. At any rate, she said that I was, um, we were in there, I was there with my husband. I can't remember if she had her family members there too, I think she did. And she said she watched as her, as this one particular man, and I think it was a church member if I'm not mistaken, but uh, I don't wanna, I don't wanna remember that detail, I don't remember that detail exactly, but she watched as uh, this uh, individual uh, took a machete and I'll just leave the details out and killed her husband right in front of her and then did the same, proceeded to do the same thing to her, okay, and left her for dead. And some people came in like two or three days later and found her and except the fact that somebody checked her pulse, um, would have assumed that she was dead but found that she was still alive. They took her out, nursed her back to health and she'd lost her family, she'd lost her husband. Eventually, after months and months of recuperation, she recovered. And then somewhere along the line, she uh, went, uh, was visiting people in prison, prisoners who had done this kind of thing. And one of the individuals that she came, through, came face to face with was an individual came up to her and said, do you remember me? And it turned out to be the man who had killed her husband and attacked her. And he asked her to forgive her. Uh, to forgive him. She not only forgave him, but Mark Finley is in there with us in this story and she's telling the story. And she calls a young man over to her and introduces him and he, she tells Mark, this is the man who tried to kill me, who killed my husband, and I've adopted him as my son. That is what God is trying to do for us. It puts $10,000 in perspective. You can't, when somebody takes your husband or your child away in a violent act like this, and yet they can turn around and forgive, that's the Spirit of God involved in their lives. If somebody takes $10,000 and doesn't return it, forgiving them is the Spirit of God in our lives. And what God will then do in that person's life is between them and God, 
and how God wants to work. Conflict management is helping people to apply the principles of the Bible, the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5, the principles of Matthew chapter 18, the parable of forgiveness that Jesus told in response to, to Peter's request, how many times should I forgive? And he said, seven? Whoa, I'm being really generous here. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. As a deacon or a deaconess, you're helping people to apply that. And let me tell you, that's where the rewards come. Yes, it can be a conflict and type environment for you as you're working with them and challenging them to that regard gently but kindly. But when they turn around, come to you weeks, even maybe years later, and say that if I hadn't forgiven, my life would have been destroyed. And what you did, those are the rewards that come to you. Those are the opportunities that are there. And let me tell you that far surpasses taking up the offering on Sabbath morning. But you have to take the time. You have to invest the energy. All right. Clock moveth on us and we must keep going. So conflict management is a very difficult area. These are some tools that will, uh, I mean, some principles that will help you. Just nice checklist. Take it and put it in with your resources, and hopefully it will be helpful to you. I want to talk to you about another area that the author, uh, Dr. Vincent White, talks about, and that's business manager. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, in this particular area. Um, as time developed from the early Christian church up over the centuries and into our time, when it comes to the local church, there were times when deacons might be the treasurer. They were deacon with deacon or deaconesses might be handling some of the finances and taking care of some of those things. And today it tends to be more specialized that a treasurer might be a CPA who's a member of the church or an accountant who's a member of the church. And uh, it may not be a deacon or deaconesses that's need to, to handle that. But I'm just kind of lumping everything here. He does it a little differently. But I'm just lumping all of these things here in this category for right now. And that is taking care of the business aspects of the church, whether it be the physical plant of the church or it be the financial issues of the church or, or whatever, but taking care of those so they're not the burden upon the pastor and not a burden upon the church as a whole, but they're being taken care of and that ministry is being accomplished. So I, I'm just categorizing that all together. I'm not spending time there because deacons and deaconesses have traditionally understood that as being part of their role, even to the point in some churches, some, some higher janitors, um, sometimes from in the church, sometimes from without the church to keep the church clean. But some churches utilize the deacons and deaconesses as the cleaning teams to be able to keep it clean. And I've seen, gone to churches where um, uh, this deaconess, uh, this, this deaconess family or, or team or whatever is responsible during the month of so and, you know, March for cleaning the church. Next month it's the other, you know, the next family and the deacons and deaconesses or whatever. And that's how that gets done. So I know that that's an understood area of of deacon and deaconess ministry, so I'm not spending a lot of time on that. I'm moving on to other areas that are beyond the general horizon so that you can begin to see some of the potential opportunities. I am backing up for a moment, a little bit of taking from the way this book is laid out, 
and just want to mention to you the election process and qualifications of a deacon or a deaconess. I did spend some time with the elders in this particular area, and yesterday I did not spend any time with uh, deacons and deaconesses on this. So I just want to highlight this so that this part of it is clear. You're elected by the local church through the nominating committee process, occasionally by the church board. Do you understand how that sometimes works? Generally, the nominating committee is taking care of that at a scheduled time every year or every other year. And then in between, there's no need for that to be done anymore. As a matter of fact, when the nominating committee report is voted, the nominating committee is dissolved. They no longer function. You don't get them back together again. If there is a need in between nominating committees, the church board serves as the nominating committee and carries out that duty. And so that work is done on that particular level occasionally. Now let's say, for example, you've got five deaconesses in your church and, and one of them moves to, uh, moves to Ohio. Uh, and you really need five. That leaves you with four and you really want another one. And there's somebody the Lord has provided in the meantime that's come and moved into your area. And uh, the more you've gotten acquainted with them and find out a little bit about their background, you know that this uh, individual would be a great deaconess. And, uh, and, but, you know, the nominating committee just got done, you know, about three months ago. So how are you going to fill that position? Nobody had expected this. Will you do it with the church board? Okay? Everybody understand that? All right. So, deacons are ordained for life. Now, I talked a little bit about the deaconess thing yesterday. And if your church is ordaining deaconesses as well, the same is true. They are ordained for life. What does that mean? That means that they never have to be ordained again as long as there isn't some journey in their life where they leave the church or disfellowshipped or or something like that, assuming that they stay in the church or whatever. But they're not ordained to the world church, they're ordained to the local church. And the difference between that is that they can only serve in the church that they are appointed to or elected in. If they move to, you know, the deaconess who was part of your church who moves to Ohio, wants to become a deaconess down there, or the church, I should say, wants her to become a deaconess down there, they can elect her, and then she can become a deaconess, or if, if it's a deacon, a deacon, and he or she does not have to be ordained again. You with me? You understand that? Now, some churches don't ordain deaconesses, and so that's fine. I'm just saying that if, we, if ordination is involved, that's how that process works. Everybody gets that clear? All right, I'm not going to spend any more time on that. Some of the qualifications that are listed in your book, and this, by the way, is coming out of the handbook this time. So that's coming out of the red book. There's a uh, section in here, and I am posting it up here. First of all, from Acts chapter 6, there are three principal qualifications that were listed there. We mentioned them yesterday, of a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. Those were the, uh, the uh, qualifications that the apostles put forth when they brought the church together and said, we need somebody to help with this ministration to the, to the widows, and the, we need these things to be the qualifications, a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. 
But then Timothy was told by Paul when he was given some qualifications for elders and deacons, and these are the things that you see listed up here. Worthy of respect, truthful in speech, uh, temperate, honest, lead a consistent life beyond reproach, responsible spouses, godly parents, and manage the family well. And some of those overlap with each other. But these are the basic qualifications. If you want to know more about them, I'm not going to spend any more time on that, but they are outlined a little bit more in detail in the deaconesses and Deacons and Deaconesses Handbook. There are a few areas that are beyond the area of ministry that you may not have thought uh, much about that, uh, let me rephrase that, beyond the area of ministry that you have traditionally thought of in relationship to the work of deacon and deaconess, and I want to spend the rest of the time highlighting those. Number one is the area of solving problems and nurturing the membership. The list here is extensive. You can add to it, and, and there's much more. Really, the work of deacon and deaconesses, there's the sky's the limit of what you can do. Uh, when you have been, you know, thinking that, the, that this is your work here, getting somebody ready for baptism, in terms of on Sabbath morning, the pastor tells you there's going to be a baptism, and the person who's going to be baptized is a lady, and so the deaconesses now know that, well, I've, I've got to get that ready. You know, it's first baptism all year long. It's probably the only one you're going to have this year. I hope not. But it's the only one you're going to have. So your job is to make sure the robe is ready and, uh, and uh, that you're, somebody's going to be there. If you can't be there, if you're the head deaconess, and to make sure that somebody's going to be there to assist her and, and make sure she has what, her, what she needs and, and gets changed and ready for the baptism and afterwards and, and so on and so forth. And then it's all over. And my duty as a deaconess, I'm done. I don't have to do anything for another year until the next baptism comes. So you are, if you're looking for something to do to make life exciting and interesting, the work of a deacon or a deaconess is, is there for you. Opportunities are great. You could visit the sick and the shut-ins. doesn't have to be just the pastor, certainly not just the elders. We're going to talk about visitation a little bit more in detail coming up. Caring for the church is poor. There are people in your church who have special needs. They may, may be struggling financially, have other issues and so on. What is the church doing to minister to them? What, what was it that uh, Dorcas did? Dorcas was caring for the needs of, of people in her church and they were struggling along the way. Not everybody in the church was rich. As a matter of fact, most of them weren't. Coordinating a program for visit visiting and integrating newcomers. Your church, hopefully, is having more than one baptism a year. Maybe it's having five or ten baptisms a year. Who is discipling those new members? Who is guiding that process and making sure those new members are integrated into your church? Who is making sure that people who transfer their membership into your church now become part of your church? Just because they've been Seventh-day Adventists for 30 years and they're transferring to your church from Battle Creek doesn't mean that they're going to automatically integrate into your church. What are you doing to make sure that they feel happy and a part of your congregation? You need to have a process in place. You need to 
think about it. Get your deaconesses together. Get your deacons together and, and sit down and plan it out with a strategy. Now, what happens when somebody comes? Now, you say, look, Pastor, with all due respect, sir, we haven't had a person transferred in this church in 30 years. Maybe the Lord's not bringing you anybody because you're not ready for them. And I am not kidding. Many times the Lord doesn't do this. Helen White makes this clear. You don't have things happening in your church because you're not preparing for it, expecting God to turn around and bless you. And I'm not just talking about transfers. I'm talking about people that will come and join your church through baptism or whatever. We haven't had a baptism in 10 years. That's not a badge of honor. Your church should be ashamed. Now, I say that nicely. I say that kindly. And I say that with love. But your church should be ashamed. Your only reason for existence is to bring people into the church. Please don't tell me there are no people in your community. Because I know that even in the UP, where the deer and the antelope love to play, and there are hardly any people scattered around, and that there are people being baptized in the UP. So they're being baptized in the UP, and your church is in Detroit somewhere. I know there are people around you that you can be leading to the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, I'm getting stuck on one there. Visit prospects. In other words, there might be interests that you know about that uh, you can provide some support for. Now, let me give you a really good example of this. This last Sabbath, um, well, actually it was two days ago, we had a lady that, that called, uh, called my wife and she said, look, I'm coming up, I want to come to camp meeting and I'm bringing my son and he wants to go with the youth up to Camp Asable because they're going on, a, on, a, uh, on a, a youth excursion up there and they were going canoeing and that kind of thing. And let me tell you something about this lady. This lady is a lady that uh, we met just a few weeks ago. She's not a Seventh-day Adventist. But um, I, I, how she got acquainted, that's a whole other story. But we really have met her just recently. And she's really excited about being a Seventh-day Adventist. We happened to go down to the village, the Heritage Village, and she wanted to go. So we took her down there and uh, she loved it. Heard all about Adventists and all of that. And she comes away from there. She says, now, what do I have to do to become a Seventh-day Adventist? There are people like this, folks. <laughs> there really are people like this. She, what do we have to do? Well, we need to study together. Well, how soon can we do this? Well, camp meeting's coming up. Well, I want to get started. So we figured out a way to do that just before camp meeting, and we had our first Bible study with her. She came to camp meeting the first Sabbath, and, uh, and she got up at 4 o'clock in the morning two days ago to get her son up here. And this is some of the, one of the ways that the, the, uh, this was impacted. Now, this could have been a deacon, but it turned out to be a pastor because I needed somebody who could do it quickly. And, um, and I was hoping that if he couldn't do it, he had a deacon or a deaconess who would be able to do this work. But I, uh, a couple weeks ago, her son was do, uh, done with school. He was going to school in the Detroit area, and he didn't have any way to get the stuff out of his room. 
And they thought they had all the arrangements made and they all fell apart. And so at the last minute, and I'm talking about the morning of the day that he's supposed to get out, a few hours later, we're trying to figure out how we're going to be able to do it. I knew I didn't have time to do it with what I was doing, but I called one of our pastors and said, you're the closest to this individual. Is it possible that you could help him? He said, you know what? Because camp meeting's coming up, I've canceled some of my appointments, and I happen to have some time today. I could take my van. Do you think the stuff would fill in? and he went there immediately and he, he loaded this young man up and, uh, and took him and met his mother and took care of all of that. And this pastor is a soul winning pastor. In that little bit of time there, he's having a conversation about this young man and how he's coming back to school there and how close the church is and inviting him to church and all of that. And this young man now is coming up here and, and all of that. This is what I'm talking about. There are people, you say, well, I can't talk to people until they're baptized, you know, and, and, and maybe they don't want to talk to us. Well, the truth of the matter is, there are many people, there's some who would be, you know, they don't want to be pushed too hard or, or whatever. There are other people that they're just, they're ready to go and they are so excited about the Bible truth and, and they're there and you can be ministering to those people and they might have special needs. It might just simply be moving from one place to another and that's a work that you can do. So it can take all kinds of different areas. Give Bible studies and prepare people for baptism. Teach the children. I went over that pretty fast. We'll come back to that in a moment. Teach the children of the church. Lead a small group. Train youth to be junior deaconesses and deacons. Help parents prepare for their child's dedication. You know, a child might be getting dedicated. You can be part of that process because you are going to continue to give that family support. Organize retreats and workshops. Counsel with those with problems. Trains de train deacons and deoneses. That's what it says up there. <laughs> deaconesses to lead out in their various work because you if you're being trained now go back and train your deacons and deaconesses if you say well hey i'm no i can't do that well then i'll invite me and i'll come uh, whatever we you know get some other people together we'll we'll do it when conflicts arise visit those in conflict and help them find solutions you have a great opportunity to serve your church what can God use you for? What is the need or what are the needs in the church uh, that you are serving the way you can minister to them? I especially don't want you to forget this one because this is the area that all of us should be a part of. We are disciples. Now, how many of you, uh, play along with me for a moment. You, I, when we did this yesterday, I asked you how many of you are deacons or deaconesses, and I think just about everybody raised their hand. Is that right? Everybody's a deaconess? Everybody's a, except one elder. We have one elder here, okay? All right. If you are a deacon or a deaconess in the church, you are a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Am I doing okay so far? Okay. If you are a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, somewhere along the line, you became a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, either... Uh, not either, through study of the Word of God, Bible studies or whatever, evangelistic meeting, grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist home and then studied the Bible and were baptized. You still had to study and be baptized somewhere along the line. Am I still doing okay so far? Right? At some point, you gave your heart to Jesus Christ. You surrendered your life to Jesus and said, I want to be a disciple of yours. Am I still doing okay? That means you're a disciple of Jesus. That means you are authorized, not only authorized, but you are charged with the responsibility of leading other people to Jesus. 
That's what a disciple is. Now, that might mean giving a Bible study. That might mean being part of Bible studies with someone else that you say, I just don't know how to teach. I'm just no good at that. But can you go along with somebody and pray along with them? And you might even find out that it's easier than you thought it was and that, wait a minute, is that all you do when you do a Bible study? Well, I could do that. I've had that experience with people. And maybe you've had that same experience. See, the Lord has called all of us to be disciples. And as I stressed, I, st I think I said this yesterday because I've said it a couple, two, three times to elders as well. You are disciples. And as disciples, you are called to be leaders in your church. As deacons and deaconesses, you are called to be leaders in your church. And because of the fact that you are leaders, you are leaders of that training center church or training school church that Ellen White says in volume, I mean, on five, in the book Christian Service, chapter 5, a whole chapter on the churches being a training school for Christian workers. You are one of the teachers. And if you're going to be one of the teachers, then you need to be experienced in doing the things that you are supposed to be teaching about. And that includes teaching the Word of God to people. So start simply. You might go across over to Emmanuel and be trained by them so that you know how to do that. And then get experience in doing it. If you're back at home and uh, you didn't have time to go at Emmanuel or you didn't do it this time and it might be coming up later, ask the pastor. Ask somebody else who's given Bible studies or, or is giving Bible studies, involved in BibleStudyOffer.com and ask for uh, an opportunity to be a part of it. And it might be terrifying you, but it is your calling in terms of being a disciple. And realize that there are ways that God can use you that are mighty in this regard. Proclaiming the gospel and giving Bible studies. Participate in those public evangelistic meetings. You know, no, nothing frustrates a pastor more than having five deacons and five deacons and deaconesses in the church. A public evangelistic meeting is coming out. An opportunity to spread the gospel in a public way and can't get a deacon or deaconess to come out to the meetings. I've been through it before. I don't need to be there. It's not just for you. <laughs> okay? And the very fact that you're not there is testimony to the, the people that come to that church that it's really not that important what's going on. I have had recently, when I do an evangelistic meeting, which is almost every year, when I do an evangelistic meeting and the place is about populated like this is, a room set up just like this, and there's a half dozen people there or a dozen people there, and, and they find out later on that this is the Seventh-day Adventist church, and they might even know Seventh-day Adventist, and they'll come up to me and say, where is everybody? It's a testimony by our absence, whether we like it or not, when I'm sitting at home watching television when I could be at that evangelistic meeting, and I'm not being present there and participating in that meeting, it is a testimony to those people of just how valuable you believe that message is for them. Just your absence. But your presence there, let's be positive, your presence there is a huge testimony. And it says so much. And there are 
tasks that need to be done and greeting people and setting up and tearing down and, and all other kinds of things that can be done and getting acquainted with people uh, along the way. If you're set up in this kind of a seminar style, you can talk to the person next to you and, and find out a little bit about them and become a friend. And some cases we do it by um, round tables and, and that's a natural kind of environment for becoming friends. You might be a table leader. There are all kinds of ways for you to be involved in this process and caring for that. Other things that help with this whole area is caring for the needs of the elderly, the handicapped in the church and community. And the reason that is in this area is because when we reach out into the community and ministering to the needs of people that are not members of our church in areas that may be very simple, including community uh, service work, we are reaching out to those people and we're helping to spread the gospel. When you work in a community service center and you're handing out clothes or you're handing out food to people, all of that is communicating the gospel to those people, yes? Assistant community programs like Habitat for Humanity. The reason I mention that is I just want to illustrate the fact that we do well to get involved in our communities. Our communities need to know that Seventh-day Adventists care about other people. And if I'm building a house for Habitat for Humanity with an organization that doesn't have to be my church, and you know what, it might be my church that decides to participate in that and do that and make a difference in their community. But maybe I'm not. I'm doing it with my church, but I'm doing it with another organization. I'm getting acquainted with other people in that community, and my life becomes an influence to them. If I'm doing this with a local Lutheran church, and I'm, uh, because I knew that, you know, I had some skills and interest in trying to help and, and be a part of that, and I get acquainted with them, and the people say, well, who are you? Well, my name is Royson, and well, what are you doing here? Well, I'm just a member of this community. I want to be part of it. I'm and I'm not going to keep my light under a bushel, so I say I'm part of the local Seventh-day Adventist church, and we like to be involved in... You what? <laughs> well, we've heard of Seventh-day Adventists, and we didn't think you cared about us at all. And, I mean, sometimes that's their attitude, and sometimes they'll actually say that. So we need to be involved in that. And deacons and deaconesses, these are great opportunities for us to be able to minister to people. It might be the elderly and the handicapped in your church that need to be cared for. Start there. That's a great place. I remember once as a pastor down in your church in those days in Kalamazoo. And uh, there was one of our one of our elderly couples there, and and uh, the wife was especially not doing well. And the man has this huge yard, and and leaves. You know, it's fall, and all the leaves are coming down, and and he doesn't know how he's going to get them all up. So the church all got together, and we swarmed the place and cleaned up the place. And what a testimony it was to that family, right? Great place to start. But what if we did that to? other people in the community as well, getting acquainted with them and ministering to them. Great opportunities come in all of these various areas. Alcohol, drug and alcohol uh, dependencies. Um, we have a pastor who's uh, down in the uh, Tecumseh and Monroe area. Uh, I think you probably have an idea where that is, south of Detroit, just before the Ohio border. Turns out, as he discovered as a pastor, getting connected with the community and also looking at local news, 
that the place with the greatest heroin dependency in the state of Michigan is in this area where he's in, in Monroe. And then the reason for that is coming across from Ohio. They apparently have a real problem in Toledo down in that area, and there's a real significant problem there. So the pastor got connected with the community. Actually, if I remember the story correctly, took the lead in that community and said, we got to do something about this. Help to get connected with other denominations and other leaders in the church and the uh, community. Got them all together and started dealing with this problem. Now there's a, a lady by the name of Sherry Peters. I think it's Sher Sherry or Sherry, something like that. She's on 3ABN and she talks about these kinds of things and deals with them. So she, he brought her in to this community. They brought her into the local high school. They broke her, brought her into all kinds of areas there and started ministering that community. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is taking the lead in dealing with this significant problem in that community. And yeah, it's just a small church. It's not a large church. There aren't a lot of drug counselors there or that kind of thing, but they help to organize some kind of a response for the community to that particular need. They didn't have to try to solve it all. He said, I've got, we've got a couple people that come to us on a regular basis and some go to the others and, and over here, but they're ministering to that community. They're making a difference in that community it's a, and it's a good thing. So I'm just saying, look at the opportunities you have for ministry. And right now you're saying, Pastor, if you use that term one more time, I am overwhelmed with all these opportunities that I have. Again, you're going into Yellowstone and you're just going to take it a step at a time. But help your church to get a vision for what they could be doing and the difference they could be making in their community. All right, let's talk about what you already know. But let me remind you about it. Part of the work of a deacon or a deaconess is leading out in the community, I mean the communion service, and preparation, organization, participation is all part of that work. That is part of your work, but now you've got a total perspective on this. It's not just this that you do. The baptismal service, preparation and assistance, assist with funeral service, commonly. I talked to a pastor this week. He, um, he had to try to organize a, a funeral response. And I'm saying to myself, that's deacons and deaconesses at work. He was able to pick up the phone and call the deaconesses. And, and they, even though it's camp meeting and the pastor's up here, the pastor didn't have to do all that. He just picked up the phone, made the phone call. And the family that needs to be ministered to at the death of one of their relatives is being ministered to because the deacons and deaconesses organized a dinner for that family and that got that taken care of. We know that during the church service, there are things that we normally do. I would like to suggest that ushering is one of those. Um, most of our churches don't have a problem with being so crowded out that you have to help people find a seat. But there are times when you may have special events at your church and if your church gets filled to capacity, your deacons and deaconesses should be immediately going into gear and saying, if it's that crowded, we need to be helping people find a seat. 
because you don't want people coming into your church and going back out. If the Lord is blessing your church with people coming to church after an evangelistic meeting and it's starting to get full and, and all, or your parking lot is for some reason getting full, as deacons and deaconesses, you've got to ask yourself, what do we need to do to work on this problem so that people aren't discouraged from coming to church? We know statistically that when a church gets to 80% of capacity or the parking lot gets to 80% of capacity, people will come in and maybe turn around and go back. They're threatened by that, that, that experience there. So you may have to say, wait a minute, the Lord's blessing us so much here. You know, the parking lot's full all the time. We don't want anybody to not come here because it's too full. We've got to figure out how we're going to solve this problem. Uh, and, you know, and that's part of our work. But at any rate, ushering, caring for the offering, other needs that are consistent with the functions of your local church. And uh, taking care of the offering is a very important function, and it needs to be handled carefully. And by the way, uh, deacons and deaconesses, you should be aware of how that offering is being handled on Sabbath morning. And it should be handled by at least two people who both sign off on counting that money. I know that there are churches that have been very lax in this. Nobody taught them, nobody told them what needed to happen, and they didn't get that done and uh, it's not appropriate handling of money. You need to do that in the right way. So um, that's an important part of that. The last thing that I want to mention here in the few minutes that we have left is talking about member visitation. Um, I've expanded your horizons uh, quite a bit, I believe. Have I expanded your horizons just a little bit at least? Okay, kinds of possibilities. This is kind of the elephant in the room. You know what I mean by that? When deacons and deaconesses and elders get together in their church, a lot of deacons and deaconesses are very somewhat subconsciously know that it's not just taking up the offering on Sabbath morning or preparing the communion bread. They know that somewhere in there it says that they're supposed to be involved in visiting and all that, but nobody wants to talk about it because it's scary, scary work. It's where you go out and you talk to people and you meet members in their homes and it takes time to do that. And we don't know how to do that and, and yada, yada, yada. So nobody really talks about it. Once in a while it comes up, a pastor brings it up and, and says something like, now, you know, we'd like to organize this work and, and we'd like to do this sometime in the future, but, and then, you know, everybody kind of goes back now look, I'm, being, I'm making a point by what I'm saying, all right? I know that it may not be there consciously, it may not even be there subconsciously, but this is a work that the deacons and deaconesses should be doing. It is the way that you get to know the needs of the members of your congregation is by going and visiting them in their homes. But it's more than just trying to do that. You have a spiritual responsibility as a spiritual leader in the church in leading those members in your church closer to Christ and helping them to prepare for the return of Jesus that's coming very, very soon. It is your responsibility to be meeting those needs together with the elders. You might team up with the elders. It might be a deacon and an elder that are going and visiting people. It might be um, an elder uh, and, a, and, a, and a deaconess going and visiting members. Now, you say, wait a minute. Well, I've done that, but here's how I've done it. 
We don't ride in the car together. I'm a married man. I'm not going with another woman in my car. That's not appropriate for me to do. But there are times when it's important for me to have a woman and my wife's not available. And I need to still do, I can't ignore this need, and I do happen to be the one who needs to go to this individual. It's a woman that I need to minister to. I'm the pastor in the situation, I need to do it. So I call on a deaconess and say, meet me at their house. And then we're able to go into that home, take care of the work that needs to be done, and then we go back in our cars and we go home from there. We can still do this work, and it's appropriate to do that. It can be deacon and deaconess. Maybe it's a husband and wife that are a team like that, or an elder that's an elder together with a wife that's a deaconess, or it can be a deacon that's not not a... not married to a deaconess, but they can still accomplish these kinds of tasks together. So I'm just bringing that out. But the bottom line is visit two by twos, dress appropriately. This, by the way, is coming from, uh, I think this is from Dr. White's book, uh, and I think there's some on it in the deacon handbook as well. The visit, what do you do, and this is from Dr. White's book, what do you do when you go to the visit? Well, why are you going there? Have a reason, and state that reason. People today are busy, right? And they want to know why you're coming. Well, I'm nosy. I want to know what's in your refrigerator. That's why I'm coming. I want to... No. You have a reason for coming there, and that is you want to get better acquainted with that family. There may be other reasons or purposes or issues that you have, but schedule the visit ahead of time. I've heard of churches that have organized visitation, And the reason they organized the visitation is because the last board meeting they had, they were talking about how bad the things were becoming financially. The church budget was down, 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 been that way for months. We can't meet our bills. It's time to have a campaign, a stewardship campaign, to go out and and to get everybody to come and uh, be faithful financially. So we're going to organize everybody, the deacons, the deaconesses, and the elders, and other people go out and visit and encourage everybody to be faithful for stewardship. So they go out and they knock on the door, they make appointments, they go and visit the people, and one of the things they encounter is, I've been here for 20 years, and this is the first time a deacon or deaconess or elders ever come to my church, and the first thing you're asking for is money. You ever had that happen? I won't ask. That's why you, that's not why, <laughs> you want to be doing visiting because you care about the people, not just because you need money for the church to be able to function. And you do that by a regular system and plan of visitation and then scheduling that out and going. Deacons and deaconesses should be visiting the members of the church once a quarter. Certainly not less than once a year. Now, some of your churches are small enough that doing it once a quarter is a piece of cake. There's four deacons and there's ten families. Okay? This can be done once a quarter without breaking your time bank. Now, in other cases, you've got 100 members and you've got four deacons or deaconesses and, and, and all, and it's going to take a little bit more work to do that on a quarterly basis. I'm just saying have a target, have a goal. Okay, so you do it twi- twice a year. Wow, you're doing it about 10 times more than has been done in your church in the last 10 years or 50 years. And you're making progress. You're getting acquainted with the people. 
Pray before you go to that home. Take time to pray for them and maintain a spirit of prayer while you're in that room. In your conversation, ask them about their home, about how things are going with them and the church, about their family, about the community, about uh, their own individual situation, like work, for example. How are they doing spiritually? Now, that may not be the first visit when you start talking about their spiritual life, but it may be the third or fourth visit where you're getting acquainted with them and we want to say, how are you doing spiritually? And if you become a friend with that person, they're going to, they're going to tell you, man, I'm doing great. I have devotions every day. This is what I've been learning about in my, my time with Jesus and I'm so excited to be a Christian and you're saying praise the Lord. Others may even say, look, you know what? I'm so discouraged. I can barely get to church on Sabbath morning. And, and you say, well, when was the last time you had a devotional time with the Lord? Oh, I haven't been able to do that for the last 10 years. Well, you've got a spiritual opportunity to now minister to them. And one of the things you want to do is know how you would respond to that. Now, the first time that you encounter that and you didn't have a plan, you don't go and say, oh, oh see, I told you I shouldn't be doing this. No, you go back and you say, Pastor, I ran into this problem. How can I minister to this family? The pastor is probably going to tell you, remember that discipleship handbook that we've been working on? In the back of that book is this nice devotional plan, and you can take that back to them, give that book to them, lay it out for them and encourage them, and then pray for them. Tell them you're going to be praying for them every day that God is going to help them in their devotional life. And I brought that book in because you need to be using that for new members as well. All right, we're almost done here. Keep the visit spiritual. This is not just a social visit. You might have aspects of a social time with them, but your real reason for being there is on a spiritual level, encouraging them with a walk with Jesus, encouraging them with their participation as a member of the church, encouraging them to get involved in the outreach of the church and the ministries of the church. If, you, if you're going, you know, if you're visiting people, one of the things you as your team need to be doing is saying, how, you know, how are we going to get everybody in this church involved in ministry somehow? If they're typically in your church, there's 20% um, of the people are doing 80% of the work, right? So what does it take to get that to 50%? So we're going to go around to the church and we're going to, our members, and we're going to say now, how could you be involved in the church? Oh, I don't have time to do anything. I'm, you know, I travel for business and, or I've got my business and I'm doing this, or you know what, I'm sick half the time and I can't do anything. Everybody can do something. But you have to, you may have to plan for that. You may have to talk about it as a team of where could this person possibly fit in. And then talk to them about it. Don't badger them. Open the door of opportunity. Perhaps invite them to come to a training time for that particular aspect. And, and whatever it is, work towards getting them involved. Close with prayer. And after you've prayed, leave immediately out the door. No chit-chat and all of that. Go out because you want that spiritual experience of prayer to be the last thing that they remember as you walk out that door. How long should you be there? 15 minutes? 15 minutes? 15 to 25 minutes? In unusual circumstances, you might stay there later. But if this is your first times in visiting, don't extend that time, even if they ask you to extend that time. Even if you have the time, 
I would make an appointment to come back again. And the reason is psychologically you want people who are busy today to know that they can get you out of that door, even if they seem to be pleading for you. Now, now, look, if they get down on their hands and knees and they've got tears in their eyes and they're saying, I need help now, not next week, and all of that, then maybe it's appropriate to stay there to do that. But sometimes people are just polite and, and say, well, can't you stay longer, and so on and so forth? And the answer is, you, you might say yes, or they might say, you know, I have this special need that we could talk about, and say, listen, you know, I only budgeted so much time here tonight. Why don't we set a time, and I'll be happy to come next week, and I'll budget an hour of time so we can talk about that. That is budgeting your time, setting good parameters for everybody, and also uh, helping them to know that they have control over their time and that they don't have control over your time. Complete the visitation report after you get done. In this book, there's a, a great re uh, report uh, form, I won't use that word, as a possibility of what you could use if your church doesn't have any way of doing it. Modify it to the needs of your church. Work with your church, your elders, your pastor in terms of what tools they may already want to use or be using. Uh, write down your report and then take it back to your board of deacons and deaconesses and share that report as is appropriate. If it's confidential stuff, you don't take it back. And if it's confidential, don't write it down. You might want to make a note there to just remind you that there was a confidential issue, but don't put it down there where somebody's going to see it because you don't want that to be getting out and the people say, I can't trust him or her and with anything that I tell them. So are we all together on that? Does it make sense? Visitation is not hard, and the truth is it's really fun. In most cases, it's a really a great time. You get to know people, things about people you never knew, and become deep spiritually connected to them as well. And your church grows because of it as you begin to develop this. The work of a deacon and deaconesses is exciting and is fun. And the sky's the limit. Go home and do that work for the Lord Jesus and you will be blessed. Quick question, then I gotta have prayer. What would be the how junior deacons and deacons and junior deaconesses would that be appropriate for the visitation and age limit? Age limit? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean as far as what would consist of a junior deacon Oh, oh, okay, okay. Um, I would be careful how I use deacon, junior deacons and deaconesses for that kind of thing um, in terms of visitation, but I would, uh, you're talking about taking them with you? Um, I would take them at times with a very general visit. Maybe it's a more of a social visit. Uh, and I don't want to, I don't want that, that didn't come out quite right. But more of a general visit than a specific need or whatever. Unless you're in a particular training mode with a little older de junior deacon or deaconess who need to start learning that process. But, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, you're not, you're not utilizing people in that that are six years old. You're dealing with junior age and higher generally in uh, doing that kind of work. Actually, That's a good question. Right. Sure. They're learning that already. Absolutely. Exactly. They're, they're getting that part of it as well. Teach them how you set up an appointment. Let them get involved. The more we get our kids involved, the more likely we are to keep them. That's one of the reasons people, they stay, and one of the reasons they leave, because they've got no reason to be there. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for being with us today. And we pray that as we uh, end this time of our 
deacon and deaconess's class that you will bless us and that you will guide and lead us. I pray that uh, we will be able to go back to our churches and strengthen this work in these local churches. And I pray that you will bless each of these deacons, deaconesses, and also um, the elder that's uh, among us in this class, that their work in the local church will become fulfilling and exciting and help to advance your work until Jesus comes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.